Well, good morning. Man, it's been such a great service uh, to this point. My job is just don't screw it up. So I, I appreciate the men who have led this morning. Uh, I invite you to turn to your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. We'll get there in a minute. Um, you know, we're in Ecclesiastes. And quite honestly, it's a strange book. Amen? Okay. Uh, and it's going to help us if we will keep a few things in mind. That uh, the author, uh, Koheleth, uh, is looking at life under the sun from a perspective that is only under the sun. One way to think about it is he's functioning like a practical atheist. Okay? So he is limiting his perspective to all that the mind can acquire as you're looking at it life from the perspective of being under the sun. And men and women, can I tell you that God has gifted us this book? It's amazing to me that the Lord would, would see a day coming in Western history where not only would some people only look at life from the perspective of under the sun, but the vast majority of people in Western culture would only look at life from the perspective of under the sun. remarkably generous to us to give us a book that's going to press into that worldview and find the missing scale in smog's armor so that the arrow of the gospel might find a place to hit. Now let me explain what I mean. There's a very, very important man, Dr. Charles Taylor, a very important Western Canadian, French Canadian philosopher, uh, sociologist. Uh, he came out with a landmark book in 2000 called A Secular Age, uh, published by Harvard Press. And, and this was essentially the question that Dr. Taylor uh, tried to answer. How did we go from a situation in Western culture in the 1500s where virtually no one could imagine believing in a world that did not involve a God to a situation in 2000 where not only do most people believe there is no God, but we all functionally operate as if there's not. How did we get to that point in just a mere 400 years where the idea of God, of anything that sort of transcends this flat plane right now, all life under earth, is not only in question, but most people live with the assumption that it doesn't exist at all. And beloved, that's your neighbors. That is not the exception. That is the rule. And we are far more secular in our thinking, in our believing. And really, this is the important part. In our imagination. It's not what we say with our lips. It's the picture that we have of life I should say, the good life that's captured our imagination and is therefore the thing that we're steering toward. Dr. Taylor puts it this way, if I can find the right uh, quote here. A way of putting our uh, present condition is to say that many people are happy living for goals which are purely imminent. They live in a way that takes no account of the transcendent whatsoever. And he will say, this is actually quite an achievement of modernity, that we have flattened 
all of reality down to this temporal, material, physical plane and world. Okay? To be a believer in this culture is to be constantly cross-pressured by all of the images and voices from the alternative position, which is this. There's no God. Everything that is can be explained materially and scientifically. There's a plausible alternative explanation to the existence of everything that does not involve any God whatsoever. But beloved, here's the good news. Purely secular people also feel cross-pressured. Because they know really, really outstanding believers who are just as smart and just as uh, generous and just as socially minded and just as winsome, who are completely convinced with their doubts that there is something else out. And it, 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 it slips out, okay? In a purely secular age, we produce movies like Doctor Strange. In a purely secular age, we are falling gaga over the Marvel Universe. Why? Because the human heart longs, the human heart yearns, and the human heart at a very deep fundamental level just cannot accept the fact that there is nothing else outside of this present reality. And at the very least, while we may not believe that it's true, we hope it is. And Ecclesiastes is the book of our age. Because it presses into that. And the way it presses into that is by pressing out all of the meaninglessness that people try to find living only on this temporal plane. Okay? So if you get lost in the book, understand something. That he's putting on his practical atheist hat. And he's acting more like a seminar leader in a college classroom than he is a lecturer. And the role of the seminar leader is just to press points and to force you to think out the implications of something that you just said or something that you believe. It's not that he doesn't believe what he's saying. He absolutely believes what he's saying. It's just limited in perspective for the sake of pushing us out of our comfortableness with this present life. Okay? So as you stand this morning to hear God's Word, I invite you to turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. And let us hear this morning, you can find that on a sort of green insert, but only if you are below the age of 30 could you read that without assistance. So I invite you also to take out your reading glasses uh, to see it as well. Speaking of vanity and toil. And actually, we need to back up to verse 1 because that's where I've been preparing from. <laughs> God is funny. Um, so I'm going to read there, and you can pick it up in verse 4. So again, I considered all the oppression that continually occurs on earth. And this is what I saw. The oppressed were in tears, but no one was comforting them. No one delivers them from the power of their oppressors. So I considered those who are dead and gone more fortunate than those who are still alive. But better than both is the one who has not been born and has not seen the evil things that are done on earth. Now in verse 4. 
Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This is also vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother. Yet there's no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun along with that youth who, has, who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Beloved, this is God's word given to us this day. Let's pray. Come, thou long-expected Jesus. Come to set thy people free from our fears and sins redeem us. Let us find our help in you. So help me now to be used by you for your glory. Take your word. May we not so much investigate it as much as you would have it investigate our own lives. For your glory, we pray. Amen. As you're sitting down, I want you to say to the person next to you, how's that working for you? Uh, many of you know that uh, for a number of years, uh, I visited the Amazon River on mission. And um, saw a lot of things. Uh, one that stands out in relationship to our text is uh, Anna Claudia. Uh, or Anna Claudia. First time I met Anna, she was 16, had two children and was pregnant with her third. Uh, she lived in a home with her mother, Anna, and two of her sisters, Anna. Uh, she had a quadriplegic brother who, no, actually, he, he had no legs, uh, who just moved around the house and the compound of their house just by nubs. And we spent about two hours that day talking with Anna, uh, primarily about the story of Jesus and the woman at the well, uh, for her life seemed to mirror that quite a bit. And then we had to leave her. 
And I just remember an incredible sadness uh, draping over my heart, uh, in part because that was my first day on that particular trip to go out into the villages. Uh, I had one of the students that I flew next to uh, on the way down to Brazil gave me a virus, and for three days I was interned in a cabin with about 102 fever. Um, but the hopelessness of her plight overwhelmed me. And I knew, knew, even if Anna were to place her faith in Christ today, there's no guarantee that in the days and weeks and months and years to follow that she won't still use her body to try to purchase a man to give her security in this life. So when Solomon says in verse 1 that he saw all the oppression and the tears of those who are oppressed and there was none to deliver them, I understand. And when people find out that you've gone on short-term or long-term missions, they always want to ask you, well, what's it like to go there? You know, what did you see? And you do, you see a lot. Do you know what no one ever asks? What's it like to come home? I'll tell you, it's, it's far more devastating to come home than it is to go. And here's why. This year, Americans will spend $480 million on Halloween costumes for their pets. We spend just a little bit shy of $14 billion annually on pornography. That's more than the federal government gives in foreign aid. And when you go abroad, you see a family of 20 living in a shack. At best. And the disparity can be overwhelming. To me, uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 4 reads very much like the journal of a missionary upon re-entry into this culture. But a very wise missionary. Because, see, here's the thing. Oppression is the theme of the entire chapter. It looks really evident when you are sitting in a dirt uh, floor hut with a young woman who's just looking for anybody that will provide security for her. And the power structures that be just create an environment where that's her only out. That, That kind of oppression is obvious. But are we as in tune with the oppression that's happening inside our own culture as it relates to our work? Because those are the two themes of this chapter, oppression and work. And they, sorry for the pun, they work all the way down through the chapter. So 
It's like he's been overseas and he's seen this, although I don't think he had to go overseas to see it. And then he comes home and he looks at the disparity, but then he also looks and sees these people are just as oppressed. It's just not that obvious. So in typical Ecclesiastes form, he's going to press in and he's going to try to find the missing scale in Smog's armor. That's a Hobbit reference, by the way, for those of you that are curious. And so this morning, I want you to ask yourself, how's work working for me? Okay. How's it working for me? We're going to see that um, there's two kinds of ways that we misuse work. Two ways that we have an unhealthy relationship with work. And then the fruits that come out of that. So you can kind of treat this sermon, talk, whatever, like a visit to WebMD. You may not be sure what ails you, but if you find yourself in the symptoms list, maybe work the way backwards. Okay? Or like a check engine light that come onto your truck or your car. You're not sure what that means, but let's, let's go back to the manual and see if maybe there's some diagnosis There's really three major things that God gifted us that have the potential for absolute greatness. But because they're so powerful, when they go wrong, they have power for great destruction. One of them is sex. One of them is money. And the other one is work. If you did a Bible survey, and I don't know if this will come up in Kevin's class, the survey of the whole Bible, um, Those three things continually pop out as these are things that you need to pay attention to because they're so powerful that when they are misused, when we have an unhealthy relationship with any of them, the damage is real. And so Solomon or Koheleth or whomever wrote is going to press into our work this morning. Okay, we all right? So the first thing we're going to see In terms of an unhealthy relationship to work, you can find down in verse 4. By the way, it's no no accident, I do not think, that when he's thinking about sort of global oppression, that work comes to mind. And we'll see that here in a second, okay? Chapter 4, verse 4, one of the most categorical statements in the entire book. I saw that all toil... And all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. Let me just close the book right there and let you think on that for 20 minutes. Here's the question that you need to consider. What's the payoff of work for you? What's the payoff? We say it's the paycheck. Mm, Is it? Okay. We typically look from work for three things. Satisfaction. Or we look for a name, recognition. Or we look for a contribution in the form of leaving a legacy. So either work's got to be all satisfying, and it rarely is. We had a sermon on that already, chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes. 
which leaves us with the last two. That the way that we have unhealthy relationships with our work is this. One, verse 4, we look for it to be a ladder for our life. A ladder that we work up the social scale. Or two, when we get down to the bottom, we look to it so that we can leave a legacy and be remembered on this planet. And he's going to show us that both of those, if we make work into both of those, we've got problems, and so do the people around us. So verse 4 I saw that all toil is envy. C.S. Lewis called it the Ur factor. He talks about pride. That pride is the cardinal sin because pride takes no pleasure in the thing itself, only in that you have more of, better, greater, grander than everybody else. So... The work as ladder climbing, the work as gaining recognition in my social group, in my uh, world, is going to exhaust you. It's not going to fulfill you because there's always going to be someone with a little bit more er than you've got er. Okay? So why are you working? Am I trying to squeeze out of my work and the profits therein a little more er? Who am I trying to impress? Whose opinion of my life matters so much to me that I'm going to press on and press on and press on and press on for greater, nicer, newer, better, right? I don't have to be the fastest guy in the race. I just have to be faster than the right people, right? You get off the wheel. And then we jump down to the bottom of the passage, and we see that Solomon reflects on who, we're not sure, but in verse 13, a poor but wise youth is better than an old and foolish king. Who no longer knows how to receive advice. For he came out of prison to become king. And even though he had been born poor. In what would become his kingdom. I considered all the living who walk on earth. As well as the successor who would arise in his place. There is no end to all the people. Nor to the past generations. Yet future generations will not rejoice in him. Which is another way of saying. They won't remember him. What's legacy thinking? Legacy thinking is this. I'm going to leave an indelible mark on this planet so that at the very least, I will be remembered. My friend, you won't. It struck me about four years ago, uh, I've been teaching at the same place for 27 years. And I've been watching people retire who have been foundation stones of that school. And in just a matter of a year, no one's thinking about them. One was the uh, principal of our lower school. Tremendous man. Hired Melissa, right? I taught his daughter. He was Mr. Everything. 
But you realize it only takes four years for there to be a kid in the school that's never heard his name. I tried to look up who was the architect that built the Colosseum. We know the Colosseum, but we don't know his name. I'm sure someone does. Some, you know, architect nerd. Um, (laughs) What's Solomon saying? If, If you live and work and the payoff for you, what you're really searching for, what your imagination is really caught up in is this. This will be a lasting remembrance of me. It might get you 50 years. It might get you 100. Heck, they might even build a statue of you so that in later generations, pigeons can come and poop on your face. (laughs) But if that's the payoff you're looking for, it's not going to come. Plus, you won't be alive to enjoy it it even if it did. So what's the point? If you don't get anything else out of Ecclesiastes, the question is this. What's the point? So if we have an unhealthy relationship with work and that we're constantly just working and being energized by the fact that this is going to make me a little bit better than somebody else, or if we're constantly being motivated and driven by the idea in our work that, well, this is going to make a name for me and I'm going to pass down a legacy, what are the fruit that come from that? Well, look at verse 5. We'll see the first one. Verse 5 is at some point you're going to reach a state of indifference. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Enjoy lunch. What in the world does that mean? Well, what does that mean? If he's folding his own hands, I mean, he stopped what? He stopped working. He's got enough to subsist. There's no point in working. I'm not getting the payoff that I was looking for, so I'm just going to stop and ultimately consume myself until I die. And lots of people reach a point where they realize it's never going to be enough. I'm never going to have enough stuff. I'm never going to have enough recognition. I'm never going to have enough satisfaction in my work. Maybe the answer is I'm just going to become indifferent And I'm just going to stop. And maybe you. Though you haven't actually quit work. You've just sort of coasted. The thrill is gone as they say. Right? And you're sitting around and you're just realizing, you know what? I can do this job blindfolded and underwater. I don't know what that means. (laughs) Um, What's the point? And you just mail it in. You've, you've stopped working. Maybe it's because what you were looking to gain out of your work, you never found and you blamed work instead of your expectations from work. And Solomon's leaning in and he's saying, wait a minute, what were you looking for? What were you looking for? So the first negative fruit is indifference. The second we find in verses 7 and 8, which is isolation. Join me there. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other. Either son or brother, yet there was no end to all his toil, and his eyes were never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, 
For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and unhappy business. It's a picture of a person that's all alone. It's Scrooge McDuck sitting on top of the pile of money with three annoying nephews. But for the most part, he's alone. Somewhere along the line, working for a living became working to live. And the things that are supposed to make life, life, get sacrificed because we have an unhealthy relationship with our work. And at the end of his life, there's no one there. Jesus told a pretty harrowing parable about the rich man and Lazarus. It's a unique parable, and that's the only parable of Jesus where a character is actually named Lazarus. But it's Lazarus and the rich guy because the rich guy, even in hell, doesn't have a name, and he's still the rich guy who's trying to order the boy Lazarus around. And he's alone. He feasted sumptuously. He dressed in fine linen and purple clothes while ignoring the oppression right at his gate. And that isolation goes on forever. Beloved, how are your relationships? Are you alone? I mean, I'm sure this guy in Ecclesiastes had work associates, people that did work for him, but you can be lonely in a crowd. He's probably alone because he sacrificed everything for work. He didn't take time to cultivate relationships with his children if he had any. He didn't take time to maintain relationships with his friends. And eventually, you find yourself alone. How's your work working for you? See, here's the problem. Did you see what it said? He doesn't think about it. He doesn't think about it. He just keeps working. And so my job this morning is to ask you to think about it. And do you have someone in your life that will go there with you and ask the questions that you won't ask yourself because you're wrapped up in the thing that you're wrapped up in? The third negative fruit is in verse 8D and in verse 13. And it's insensitivity. So one possible fruit is indifference. The second possible fruit is isolation. And then insensitivity. Chapter 4 verse 8D. Says. I'm not saying it. (laughs) Well, my notes say it's supposed to be there. Oh, there it is. One person has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling? And when you jump down to verse 13, 
Who do you see in that passage? You see the guy that's made it. I mean, he rose from rags to riches, from pit to palace. And apparently that made him the expert on all of life because he's no longer able to receive advice. When we have an unhealthy relationship with our work, it can oppress us when we're not living up to his expectations, when we're not getting the payoff that we're looking for. But, beloved, it can also oppress you when you are. When you have the (laughs) better-er, when you have the better name, when you have left a type of legacy, it can make you numb and insensitive to asking questions that you ought to be asking and receiving instruction and counsel that you ought to be receiving. Woe be unto us when we think that we have arrived. So the indifferent person neglects work. The isolated person has no one with which to work. And the king of his own empire has become numb to any suggestions outside of work. None of those seem like a good cocktail for happiness in life. In fact, they're the fruit of death in a way. We get a little snippet in Ephesians 4.28. I probably shouldn't call anything that Paul says a snippet. Um, But you might be sitting there thinking, okay, Steve, you've shown us maybe some negative aspects of work, but what's the point of work then? Well, Paul says this in Ephesians 4.28, let him who steals steal no longer and find something useful to do with his hands so that he may bless other people. At the heart of the matter here, folks, the problem with work and and trying to wrench life out of work is that it becomes all about me. And we weren't created to be that way. We were created to bless. Work is cursed, but work itself isn't a curse. our hearts wrench it out of whack. We're asking it to save us in some way. And in looking to it to save us, it not only oppresses us, but it oppresses everybody else around us in some way. So what do we do? How do I I, I sort of realign? Give me something to take home, okay? First of all, number one, go there. (laughs) Go there. Ask the questions. Have somebody in your life that's asking you on a regular basis, why? What's the payoff for you? I mean, you know, what, what are you really looking for? Maybe you've got a good answer. Maybe it is to bless other people. That's awesome. But are you even asking the question or have you reached the point where you're numb? and insensitive to advice and counsel. Number two, own it. Own it. I mean, let's be honest. We all can make an idol out of work, and it doesn't matter if you're a housewife or a CEO. If I'm frustrated in my work, it may simply be because doing work on this side of Eden is difficult. 
Or it might be that I'm not getting the payoff that I think I should be getting from that work. And that's a burden you shouldn't be carrying around. But you've got to own it that you're trying to make work your Savior. And then four things that I want to encourage you to do every morning. Okay, you ready? And I was blessed to hear Paul Tripp share these at a DTS chapel service about three weeks ago. This is not original with me. I've been doing it every day since he told me to do it. I want to share it with you. You ready? You should write these down. Okay. Number one, every morning, and this is before you do your normal quiet time or your normal devotional, just, just a way to start the day. Because here's the thing. Oppression is ugly. Having an unhealthy relationship with our work is oppressive to us. It's ugly. It sucks the life out of us. So what do you do? Number one, gaze, G-A-Z-E. David said when he's running from his young son Absalom and hiding in a cave, where does he want to go? I want to go to the temple and I want to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Now, either he is some super spiritual weirdo or he's on to something. And maybe what he's on to is the only way to wash away the ugliness of an unhealthy relationship to life is to be bathed in beauty. So pick a chapter. Go to Isaiah 40. Go to Job 38, 39. Go to Ephesians 1 and 2. All of which speak as um, Bill just prayed earlier, of our God and His beauty. He sits on the outer circle of this universe, Isaiah says, and we are like grasshoppers in His eyes. Nations are like drops in a bucket, Isaiah says. But to those who are his lambs, he will shepherd them and gather us up into his arms. And there is a day coming when he will level all mountains and fill up all valleys and he will make our path straight, even though right now we live in a really oppressive time. So just take a few minutes every day and you don't have to do the whole chapter, but just just drink it in. That God is beautiful, that His power is beautiful, that His grace is beautiful, that His wisdom is beautiful, that His might is beautiful, that His providence is beautiful, that His ways are beautiful. And then number two, remember. Remember that all that beauty of God is yours because of His grace in Jesus Christ. So it's not just that he's some abstract beauty out there that you go see in a museum, but that you as his child, he has promised to shower that beauty down on you in Jesus Christ so that you as his child, his power is for you, his wisdom is for you, his grace is for you, his love is for you, his providence is for you, and that he is working all things according to the counsel of his own will, and he is working towards something good for you every day, even if you can't see it. So that number three, you can rest. Look, every one of us in this room constantly talks to ourselves. (laughs) 
fire your inner lawyer. (laughs) Say it right now. You're fired. All right. But here's the thing. You can't shut up one voice without putting another one in its place. What we're talking about is daily preaching the gospel to ourselves because you are believing some gospel about your life. There's no guarantee that it's the right one. So how do you rest? You take all of that that you just spent two or three minutes soaking in and you realize that in the eyes of the only person in the universe whose opinion matters one iota. Because of Jesus Christ, he's crazy about you and you're beautiful in his sight. I don't have to leave a legacy. I don't have to be better. I don't have to gain great satisfaction out of everything that I'm doing. Because you know what, beloved? The God of the universe who sits outside of a 48 billion light year universe thinks I'm the apple of his eye. And one day, one day, he will dance over me. And I will dance with him. Fourth, now go live. Go live. Go live courageously. Go live sacrificially. Go live wisely. Go live in the light of the fact that your father is the king of this universe who's crazy about you, who loves you, that thinks you're beautiful, that has showered you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. What have I got to lose? So that now, you see, I can find something useful to do with my hands to bless others. When peace like a river attends my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, and this is the most helpful line perhaps of any hymn I've ever read, you have taught me to say, It is well with my soul. Beloved, this morning, if you're a Christian, if you want this peace in your life, then you need to think out the implications of what you believe. Non-Christians, secularists, you know how they get peace in their life? By not thinking out the implications of what they believe. Because if they did, they'd end up like Tolstoy, who's ready to take his life at 50. Think about it. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. It is well with my soul.